Welcome to More Than Medicine, where Jesus is more than enough for the ills that plague our culture and our country. Hosted by author and physician Dr. Robert Jackson, his wife Carlotta, and their daughter Hannah Miller, this program will help you understand that human beings are more than just physiology, that for people there's more than just diagnosis and treatment, and that in life there's more than just medicine for a cure. This is More Than Medicine, and the doctor is in. This is Dr. Robert Jackson, and you're listening to More Than Medicine. Today, we're going to reverse roles. Today, I am going to be the MC, and my lovely daughter, Miss Hannah Miller, is going to be our guest. And I'm going to be interviewing her today about parenting digital natives. Now, let me bring you up to speed, because in the last two weeks, we have talked about how to guard your child's moral purity. And then last week, we talked about building hedges of protection around our lives and around our family lives. And so that logically segues into our talk today about parenting digital natives. Now, Hannah, what in the world does that phrase mean? (laughs) Well, digital natives are what they call... Uh, young people who are really just a little bit younger than myself. The internet kind of came along when I was hitting high school age, middle school, high school, and uh, middle school really, but it became just everybody started getting it when I was in high school and everybody was starting to have fast speed internet and that kind of thing. So it really progressed at that point. So everybody kids, but our house. Yeah, we were we live out in the sticks. So we <laughs> we had dial up for another like 10 years. So uh, and that was probably a good thing in in hindsight. So digital natives are these kids who do not have a time period in their lives where they did not have mobile devices in the internet. So they're what we call digital natives. And I have kind of subtitled this talk, uh, Raising Tech Savvy Kids in a Tech Dependent World. And so that's what we're gonna be talking about uh, this mor- today. All right, well then here's my first question. What are the main concerns with technology in your opinion? Well, let me narrow that down a little bit and then we'll broaden it back out. Um, I think the two big things that people have to talk about, um, well, the first one would be cyberbullying. There's two, and the first one is cyberbullying. And cyberbullying is the use of information and communications technology between minors to humiliate, taunt, and disparage one another. Cyberbullying is intended to tease, embarrass, defame a targeted minor with the assailant's developmental needs for peer acceptance and recognition being a priori. Dissimilar to physical bullying, cyberbullying does not involve face-to-face contact and primarily occurs online using electronic devices as the tools for information dissemination. So when an adult is involved as the aggressor, it meets criteria for cyber harassment or cyber stalking, which in many states is a criminal act. So that's kind of the difference there between minors and adults. Uh, Cyber bullies are usually motivated by a need for peer acceptance and or power and control. A small percentage of cyber bullies engage in these maladaptive behaviors out of ignorance of the distress they cause a target child. The most malevolent form of cyberbully feels minimal remorse for the harm they are inflicting upon the target child. It's been speculated that children view the real world and the online or virtual world as part of a seamless continuum. 
and unable to differentiate reality from virtual reality, victims of online bullying can become psychologically devastated and or bullies themselves. So it kind of creates a cyclical behavior where bullies often produce more bullies. Of middle school and high school students, 17.1% of females and 17.7% of males say they have been cyberbullied in the past 30 days. 38.7% of females and 34.1% of males say they have been bullied in their lifetime. Now, 4.6% of, of females and 8.1% of males say they have cyberbullied others in the previous 30 days. And 13.4% of females and 16.1% of males say they have cyberbullied others in their lifetime. There are approximately 38 forms of cyberbullying, which is a huge number, and I, some of those include happy slapping, which is, happy slapping is a relatively new type of cyberbullying that integrates the rapid growth of video online and classic bullying. This occurs when a target child or unsuspecting victim is physically attacked or embarrassed in person and an accomplice re video records or takes pictures of the incident. The video or image is then posted online at video and social networking sites for public consumption. With the widespread growth of mobile device technology, happy slapping is a cyberbullying tactic likely to grow. And, and that's for sure because a video is the new future with social media. Um, pr all, across the board, social media apps are turning to a video primarily video platforms Instagram Facebook TikTok Snapchat all of those things are becoming very video heavy um, another is griefing and that's habitually interrupting a child's online gaming interactions another is pornography and marketing list insertion and that's covertly signing a target child up to porn sites and marketing lists which then makes them subject to not only law enforcement, but their parents. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, this child is then inflicted with an onslaught of emails or text messages or things like that, that they have didn't no desire. Sign, they, they didn't, didn't sign, sign up. That. Right. Mm -hmm. And that they didn't want to see. And then another one is exposure. And that's one that we're all familiar. We, we tend to think of the most when we think of cyberbullying, which is publicly exposing a child's sensitive information. And there's other, other terms. Um, like I said, there's 34 other forms of cyberbullying. Then the other aspect, and these both have to do primarily with the internet. So there's technology broadly, internet, um, and the other one is kind of a, we all know, pornography. And according to research presented at the 125th Annual Convention of the American Psychological Association in 2017, the average age of first exposure to pornography was 13 years old, with the youngest exposure as early as 5 and the latest older than 26. More men indicated their first exposure was accidental, uh, with 43.5%, than intentional, 33.4%, or forced, 17.2%. So you have roughly 60% of men indicating that their first exposure was accidental or forced. Um, so that's a, this was a study though, primarily taking into account men. All right. Now what about filters? I mean, we, I, I'm always talking to parents who say that they, they are interested in putting filters on their children's devices. How, talk to me about that a little bit. Okay. Well, filters 
I kind of see those as a failure. <laughs> and let me explain tell us, that. Tell us why. Yeah, let me explain that a little bit. Um, the Oxford Internet Institute performed a study titled Internet Filtering and Adolescent Exposure to Online Sexual Material. The study itself was comprised of two parts, with the first involved, and the first involved 9,352 males and 9,357 female subjects aged between 11 and 16 from across the, U, uh, the EU and UK. The second involved 1,004 subjects aged 14 to 15 from the UK. And overall, they found that around 50% of all subjects had some sort of internet filter at home. Despite this, there was no discernible difference in the amount of porn they'd seen, with the researchers estimating that there would need to be between 17 and 77 filters in place to prevent a single young person from accessing porn. My goodness. Yeah, that's staggering. And so I, and the reason I bring this up and I like to talk to parents about this is because we rely on filters and we think that we can put a filter on a computer and walk away. So researchers were also surprised, surprised to find that households reporting using filters were more, not less likely to have an adolescent who reported having seen violent pornography in the past six months. So it's almost like filters attract violent porn, not just any kind of porn, but violent porn, because children who, adolescents who had a filter were more likely to have been exposed to violent porn. So. This brings me to my main point regarding filters, and that's that filters are reactive, not proactive. And while filters may have performed better on desktop laptop computers, with the ubiquitousness of smartphones, those filters are it's no longer sufficient. And they a lot of them don't, they, I mean, they don't work. A filter doesn't necessarily work on a cell phone device. You have to have what's called monitoring apps. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Porn is predatory, not passive. Yeah, we all know that. Every guy in this universe knows that porn seeks you out. Yes, and I think that there's a, a there's a little bit of ignorance on that um, from maybe women or parents who've not had any exposure to porn. They just think that porn is out there, and their children have to search for it to find it. Um, they don't realize like like that their child's going to have to go to a website that will then. Uh, you know, have a pop-up or something such as that. They're going to have to go to a somewhat shady website in order for this pop-up to come up. But we have to realize that porn is, a, is they are predatory, they're aggress it's aggressive, and they're striving to get their product in front of your child. Because remember, most por first porn encounters are accidental or involuntary, though, 60%. Yeah. And in order to create an addict, or rather a customer, and it's all about the bottom line. If you create an addict, you create a returning customer. And that's what that industry is all about. All right. Now, what about the outcomes? Well, the outcomes are pretty devastating. Experts agree that the emotional trauma of cyberbullying and the addictive nature of pornography have created a mental health crisis amongst our children. A study published in the Journal of Abnormal Psychology finds that the percentage of U.S. teens and young adults reporting mental distress, depression, and suicidal thoughts and actions has risen significantly over the past decade. While these problems also increased among adults 26 and older, the increase was not nearly as large as among young younger people. And I can testify to that because in my medical practice, when I was first in medical practice 38 years ago, I didn't see near the number of depressed teenagers that I see now. It's like mm -hmm. skyrocketed in the last 10 years. 
Yeah, and while researchers can't unequivocally say that social media has caused the rise in depression, anxiety, and suicidal thoughts and behaviors in teens, they can provide correlation. Primarily in, in 2009, about 50% of high school seniors visited a social media site every day. Three years later, by 2012, smartphones became widespread, and today the number of high school seniors visiting a social media site each day has climbed to 85%. And in that same time period, we've had the skyrocketing numbers of depression, anxiety, and, uh, and suicidal thoughts and behaviors. Yeah. So every, every teenager that comes in my medical office, when I see them, I have to say to them, please put your cell phone down and talk to me. Yeah, look me in the face. Look, talk to me on the, and, and give me mm-hmm. eye contact. That's, a, that's what I call, and I'll refer to it later, but um, it's a face to, it's phone-to-face behavior. Yeah. But, yeah, they're it's it's constant. Like, it's like I'm not even in the room. They're, yeah. just t- they're glued to the cell phone, and they, they don't understand social propriety. Yeah, etiquette. It's an it's etiquette, a, yeah. and they, nobody has taught them uh, social etiquette and communication skills yeah. and what is required of them in that moment, and, and one of those and, being and We have signs now. all over the office, please, no, no cell yeah. phone activity in our office, and yet there they are glued to the cell yeah. phone in my office. Well, psychologist Jean Twinge with Sa- San Diego State University, who headed the study and is author of the book iGen, analyzed data from the National Survey on Drug Use and Health, which is a government survey that tracks mental health and substance use in individuals ages 12 and over in the U.S. And Twinge and her colleagues looked at survey responses from more than 200,000 adolescents ages 12 to 17 and almost 400,000 young adults ages 18 and over between 2005 and 2017. They found the rate of individuals reporting symptoms consistent with major depression over the past year increased 52% in teens and 63% in young adults over a decade. My goodness. Well, is this rate the same amongst both boys and girls? Girls are uh, more vulnerable than boys. By 2017, one out of every five teenage girls had experienced major depression in the last year. And I believe, now this is, I don't have a study to go alongside with this, but I believe this to be true about young girls because social status and image are so important to their demographic. And for the first time in history, girls can place a numerical value on their self-worth via likes, shares, and comments. While boys have the same self-worth struggles, it is to a lesser degree than girls and is generally achieved through other avenues such as their status on video games which are primarily accessible to the gaming world versus the the entirety of social media. So girls have a much, what they view as their social status is much more public um, than than a boy's because his is primarily constrained to the gaming world. Um, And there's more... And that's uh, more within his control. Yes, and that's my next point. It's more within the young boy's control because he can change his game stats, whereas a girl only has so much control over how many people like, share, or comment on her posts. And while boys can control this change by upping their video gaming skills, girls often adopt deviant or sexual behavior to up their social media status, thus fostering depression and anxiety when either their social status does not change or they adopt behaviors contrary to achieving true self-worth, which you and I know is only found in Jesus Christ. So the rates of psychological distress, which Twinge describes as feeling nervous, hopeless, or that everything in life is is an effort, rose by 71% among people aged 18 to 25. 
Suicidal thoughts, plans, and attempts also increased, and death from suicide increased by 56% among 18 and 19-year-olds between 2008 and 2017. That is amazing. But I can see that in my own medical yeah. practice. I see that exact thing happen, and they're right. It is more prevalent in young females than in young guys. I and that's I my treat- hypothesis on why that's tr- why that's true. I haven't seen anybody out there saying that, so y'all know that I'm not quoting some expert out there. Well, that's just me as a female yeah. who's grown up, for the most part, with social media. Yeah. Well, I treat more depressed young females than I do depressed guys, mm-hmm. and that's, you know, I'm, I'm pretty confident that every family doctor could tell you the same thing. All right, well, let me ask you this. Is it just the phone or social media itself that's causing the problem? It's not just the phone or social media itself, according to this previous study and this researcher, Twinge. It's the amount of time teens and young adults spend with it. As Twinge found in earlier research, the more time they spend, the greater the risk of depressive symptoms. Twinge says it's known from a body of research that that in-person social contact is good for mental health. She questions whether spending that same amount of time on Instagram and Snapchat is just as beneficial. And she says, quote, it seems clear the answer is no, end quote. And I I like to use the comparison of, you know, God designed us for community. Now, we're the most connected generation that's ever been in the history of the world. But what we need is community. We have con- when we, and we've tried to substitute connectivity for community, and we're and we're realizing that no matter how much we connect with other humans via technology across the globe, it doesn't fulfill the need that we have that God put in us for community. And we're realizing that, and I think actually that's been one of the things that COVID nineteen has really revealed to us and reminded us of is the value of our communities Mm -hmm. because there's been elements of that that have been stripped away and we've realized that we desperately need our communities whether it be church or school or just our neighborhood that's exactly right so for reference um, according to pew research 95 percent of teens have a smartphone or access to one 45 percent of teens say that they are online on a near constant basis so while we all watch them, they walk around looking at their phones right. constantly, and, and they say that, and that's forty-five percent who say on a near constant basis. So that means that there's a large swath out there that may not be near constant, but it's pert near, <laughs> pert near that's to right. near constant. Right. So while iGen is considered the safest generation physically, because they're driving less, partying less, drinking less, since they're staying home on their devices. They are now facing a mental health crisis due not just to cyberbullying and pornography, but to the addictive nature of social media, video gaming, and just devices in general. And while social media is still a little new for psychologists and researchers to definitively say social media is addictive, we only have to look at the near constant phone-to-face behavior, that's what I call it, phone-to-face behavior, of the millennial and iGen generations to know there is something about smartphones and primarily social media that captures us. Mm-hmm. Some researchers are already suggesting that social media is addictive because we receive a dopamine hit for likes, shares, and comments on our social media accounts. Now, I've not mentioned video gaming as much up to this point, 
that could truly be an entire show. But I will quickly say that we should not forget that social media includes video gaming due to video gaming's messaging and networking abilities. And the nature of gaming alone is addictive, primarily to young boys who thrive on the challenge of gaming. 97% of boys use video games, whereas girls use social media more. And also the video gaming industry has a higher income than the movie and the music industries combined. This surprised me, but I have very little exposure to video gaming as neither my husband or myself engage in video gaming. Mm -hmm. I just found, found that to be fascinating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, so what's your advice to parents? Let's talk about that. Only you can be proactive. We've talked about the filters. We've talked about that. You know, that's those are pretty much a failure because teens really aren't on desktops and laptops like they used to. Everything is in your pocket. It's on right. your right. it's it's on your phone or an iPad or something like that. So only you can be proactive. Uh, another failure of filters is that they primarily address porn and not cyberbullying. And there is a parental control monitoring app called Bark. B-A-R-K. Yeah, B-A-R-K. And it's considered the best program for proactively monitoring text messages, YouTube, emails, and 30-plus different social network apps. It's roughly $5 to $14 a month, depending on which service that you purchase. And, of course, Covenant Eyes is a great program. Covenant Eyes is a similar program, but it's primarily for pornography versus cyberbullying. And it's much more of an accountability. Mostly adults have used this, but I do think that they've begun, they've honed it in for families more as well to be a great tool for families. Yep, it's a, it's a device, uh, a program that we use for our family. Right. Um, despite these helpful tools, though, we can't solely rely on them. As the Oxford study revealed, relying on filters is not adequate. And as helpful as Bark and Covenant Eyes are, they're still only tools in your parenting toolbox. God made you, the parents, the gatekeeper of your home. Not filters, not monitoring monitoring apps. You are in charge of what comes into the home, whether through your front door, through your TV, through a video game, or through your child's smartphone. These tools I mentioned can be an asset, but ultimately, you're the protector for your children. No one else and nothing is a substitute for you, the parent, being present and engaged in your child's life and specific to this conversation, your child's smartphone activity. You're right. You're exactly right. So do you have any suggestions for how parents can be proactive? So I suggest waiting until at least... 13 to purchase your child any kind of device and truly I would wait until they're driving on their own to purchase them a smartphone and I know that there's there's a big movement out there called wait till eight but there's no valid reason within the normal parameters of family life for any child younger than driving age to need a mobile phone and I know that's incredibly countercultural because every eight-year-old out there every six-year-old out there has got some sort of mobile device because they just have to be able to call mom look they can trot down to the to the nurse's office or the front desk at school and call you because that's where they're at eight mm. hours out of, out of, of the day. Every day when did you get your first phone Miss uh, when I was driving did you die before that time <laughs> I did not die before and you know what I spent a lot of time out on horseback in the middle of nowhere <laughs> uh, hours and hours and hours every day so we survived <laughs> so the the next thing I suggest is uh, set boundaries Maybe you don't want them playing certain video games, or maybe you don't want them on Snapchat. No matter your reasoning, parents should feel entitled to oversee their kids' online habits. Your child does not have a right to their privacy on their cell phone. 
All right, let me say that again. Your child does not have a right to their privacy on their cell phone that you probably bought them. And, and they, are paying for and, every month. Or, and or paying for every month. That's correct. A good rule of thumb is that if you're not out of bounds paying attention to a subject in the real world, say who their friends are and where they'll be after school, then it's inbounds online. Who are they chatting with and what apps are they using? Exactly. So the next one, the third one is prioritize sleep and smartphone device usage in the bedrooms. Smartphones, video games, TV, and essentially any blue screen usage near bedtime negatively impacts our sleep by, in short, suppressing our body's production of melatonin, which is what sends the correct signals to our bodies to get calm, to cool off, and to shut down for sleep. Furthermore, I strongly suggest disallowing smartphones in the bedrooms, but especially after 8 in the evening. Nothing good happens on the internet or on phones in secret, and especially not in secret after dark. Darkness and privacy are a recipe for bad behavior, whether via the internet, via sexting, or through a myriad of other outlets. I know one family that requires all electronic devices to be placed in a basket at the front door upon entry into the home. They are only allowed, and this is for kids, adults, guests, everybody. They're only allowed to use them for approved activities, primarily homework, and only in the family room. The added benefit is that this helps kids to walk away from the school drama and bullying that now follows them home via social media 24 hours a day. The next thing is use a filter and a monitoring system such as Covenant Eyes or Bark. The next thing is be watchful, but also be transparent. Because I said so is sufficient for young children, but be willing to have difficult conversations about why the boundaries are in place as your children mature. Help your children to understand you don't have these boundaries in place to limit them and take away all their fun, but to protect them. Exactly the, right. the next thing is use, use digital timeouts. Google's Family Link, Family Zone, and Screen Time, Screen Time are all apps that offer digital timeouts as a service uh, where an entire device, aside from emergency calls, can be shut down according to a schedule or at the whim of the parent. Multiple proverbs in the scriptures point to the importance of moderation, and that principle can certainly be applied to technology and internet usage. Next, teach your, your kids the fundamentals of digital citizenship. By default, if you train your children in a Judeo-Christian ethic to be kind, honest, and wise young people, they will be a good citizen, good digital citizen. I know that this is slightly vague, but I can't take a detour into raising children according to a biblical ethic right now. <laughs> uh, the next thing is most of us believe that young people as digital natives are more internet savvy than we are because they are more technologically adept. After all, they're digital natives, but all contraire. There's a distinct difference between technical literacy and information literacy. And just because I can get up on a horse doesn't mean I can masterfully ride that horse. And the same is true for digital natives. Just because they can easily get on the internet, internet and navigate smart devices does not mean they can intuitively spot scams, avoid bad websites, protect their information, recognize a predator or bully, or discern false information from truth. So, there are five elements of internet safety that we should teach our kids. Google has a program called Be Internet Awesome, and they teach these elements as being, one, sharp, think before you share, two, alert, check it's for real, three, secure, protect yourself, kind, respect each other, brave, 
when in doubt, discuss. And they break that down a little bit more for parents. And then lastly, um, Google has an online game called Interland that strives to teach kids these elements of internet safety and being what they call internet awesome. I have not been through the entire program myself, but I have started it and been through portions of it, and I think it could be a useful tool, although in full disclosure, I am cautious to recommend Google tools because of their political activism. Lastly, you're the parent. You are the God-ordained gatekeeper. Judiciously guard every point of entry into your home. Pray that God will place hedges of protection around your children and pray that everything they see, hear, think, do, and experience is honorable. Thank you for listening to today's edition of More Than Medicine. You can follow Jackson Family Ministry on Facebook, Instagram, and on their website. Be sure to contact them via jacksonfamilyministry at gmail.com for speaking engagements and for book information. Join us next time for More Than Medicine.